My name is uh, Biondo Biondi, and uh, my favorite part of being a scientist is using my brains and creativity to uh, understand the world better and to invent theories as well, practical solutions to humanity's problem. Welcome to Seismic Sound Off, exploring the scientific value and usefulness of geophysics. I'm your host, Andrew Gary. Biondo Biondi, the director of the Stanford Earth Imaging Project, joins the podcast to discuss SEP's 50-year history and future outlook. Biondo reflects on SEP's founding during the 1970s oil crisis and today as it tackles modern energy challenges. Biondo discusses how improving seismic imaging can support the future of carbon capture and geothermal energy and help build resilient cities. Biondo uses an article in the leading edge from 1987 on the then-called Stanford Exploration Project to offer insights into what we still know and don't know about geophysical data. He also shares why he believes so many SEP alums have been guests on this very podcast. To find links to the Stanford Earth Imaging Project and the 1987 TLE article, please check out the show notes for this episode. This will be the last episode of Seismic Sound Off for 2023. The podcast will return on January 18th, 2024, with 12 weekly episodes in a row. We look forward to sharing more geophysics stories in 2024. And now, my conversation with Biondo Biondi. It's exciting to speak with you about the Stanford Earth Imaging Project. In an article and doing research for this conversation, in an article on the then called Stanford Exploration Project in the Leading Edge, dating back to December 1987, the founder John Clairbout mentioned that we only understand and have been able to use two to three percent of all the geophysical data we have accumulated through the years as of 1987 in that conversation. What is the status of that number in 2023? I cannot really be specific on the 2 and 3%, but I think that is still true that we understand a, a very small percent of the data that we collect. But that's not because our ability to understand the data have not gone incredibly since then, but because improvement in data acquisition technology have made a, a huge progress. And now we do have so much more data of many different kinds and acquired in different ways than we used to have back then. And that is a lot of opportunity for young scientists to get into the field and develop better methods to understand that data and make it useful. Well, it's, it's 50 years of SEP. And go back, you know, this, uh, before you started working with them, but what inspired the creation of the SEP? I think that was a uh, John uh, incredible uh, creativity and drive, and at uh, uh, the same time uh, it coincided uh, with the first energy crisis, and so he invented uh, uh, really new ways uh, of imaging reflection seismic data that turned out to be uh, incredibly helpful to find the more energy resources for humanity to keep going its uh, uh, economy. And uh, uh, and that, I think, that was a wonderful coincidence. And indeed, uh, I think that the fact that uh, so many 
hundreds of millions of people uh, go out of poverty is uh, in at least in the small part uh, thanks to the methodology that uh, have allowed humanity to develop fiber energy resources since the 60s and the 70s. Yeah, it's a testament to human progress and scientific progress during that time frame. What is the driving objective of the project? The ability to uh, use the seismic technology that is available to us now or at any moment in time to solve important problems uh, for society. So it used to be at the beginning, uh, clearly was uh, finding new hydrocarbon resources. Now that has changed. And now we want to use seismic technology to uh, help humanity through the energy transition that is clearly challenging in so many ways. But it does depend on our ability to image the subsurface over time, so to monitor uh, important phenomena in the subsurface. What do you think SEP is most known for in its first 50 years? I would say that proudly is first to, to uh, educate uh, uh, fantastic geophysicists that had an impact on the community. I think that is, again, testament to John's personality that uh, he enabled the young scientists to find their ways uh, within the shelter of an academic world. And then what they learned about all the ups and downs and the challenges to uh, create new science and technology they took out to the world, can be industry, academia, and uh, that made a difference. What in particular made you proud to become a part of the SEP? I think that uh, I'm proud that I'm taking on John's uh, legacy. I've been down now for half of the time, more or less, of the SEP. I joined SEP as a student in mid-80s, so when uh, I was uh, only 10, 15 years old. And I think that I'm proud that now uh, we have reached 50 years old and we are still very active and successful, and that I've been uh, instrumental to the transition of SAP to be uh, focused on uh, finding more hydrocarbon resources to a broader uh, mission of really helping the energy transition, and that it does include also discovering new hydrocarbon resources that are more environmentally friendly than others that might be already available. Why did SEP change their name from the Exploration Project to Earth Imaging, the Stanford Earth Imaging Project now? I have to confess that I was uh, uh, really debating whether to do it because exploration has really a broader meaning than uh, unfortunately is often thought that is mostly thought in terms of hydrocarbon exploration. Exploration is a word that we use for space exploration, is really exploring the unknown. Uh, however, I think uh, given the context, it was uh, clearly uh, sending a message that was too narrow for what is today's mission, that is imaging the Earth and particularly the subsurface in a way that using seismic technology mostly to address uh, societal problems of today. Yeah, that makes sense with more and more programs starting to develop around space exploration just to make it clear to prospective students and the work that it, this is focused on the Earth. 
Yeah, and I should also say that the prospective students are, are a crucial part. So, uh, as I mentioned, I think the proudest legacy of SAP is really educating top large geophysicists. And that is something that we want to carry on for uh, a few decades more. And uh, as such, uh, we need to be able to motivate uh, bright young scientists in the sciences and engineering. They may know, not know much about geophysics or, or seismology, and uh, but to make them understand uh, that uh, still we can have an impact. Absolutely. And speaking of impact, how would you say SEP engages with the broader scientific community to share its findings? I think mostly uh, through uh, the connection with Stanford, with uh, uh, faculties and groups in other departments that are very much engaged in the energy transition, as well as uh, other activities that uh, we have uh, to contribute to a more sustainable uh, cities in the future. I'm not sure if you have uh, seen that in your work, but uh, uh, we have, have an active uh, focus on uh, using uh, fiber optic seismic data to uh, better manage uh, sustainable uh, cities in the future, both to natural hazard as well, uh, more anthropogenic or human-made hazards. You know, you, you've mentioned several times the, the students that come through the program. You're a testament to one of those students as well. And when I was going back looking through the famous SCP alumni that you mentioned, I've spoken to a lot of them for this podcast. I knew a lot of them at my time when I worked at SEG. Why do you think the SCP has had such a, an impact past and present on geophysics? Well, first, because we, given the, our mission and uh, our history, we can attract uh, the top bright young people that uh, have an interest in uh, seismology and applied geophysics. And second, because uh, we are giving them an environment to go as the scientists and professionals. And as such, when they are going out in industry or academia, uh, they are ready to contribute and continue the cycle uh, to work with uh, young scientists. Again, can be both in uh, industry or in uh, uh, academia that uh, uh, will make themselves will make important contributions. So. I think that is uh, really a virtual cycle that is crucial to our impact. I like that, a virtual cycle there. What areas do you hope the Stanford Earth Imaging Project play a major role in the next 50 years? As uh, I mentioned, definitely uh, the focus has changed more towards sustainability. As you may know, at Stanford, uh, we are now part of the Doe School for Sustainability. And that is a change that have happened in the past few years that uh, uh, brings uh, uh, some challenges, but a lot of opportunities. So, and in particular, I can say that uh, uh, the safe sequestration of CO2 in uh, the subsurface is going to be one of the major technological challenges where geophysical, in particular seismic monitoring, have to play a major role to make sure that the projects are safe and economical at the same time. The other one that is probably the production of geothermal energy that is a sustainable, renewable energy 
for humanities uh, that has been around for a while, but uh, uh, more recent technological advancement, they might make uh, uh, economic at a much larger scale than has been in the past. And then, as I was mentioning, uh, we had been working on leveraging uh, the existing telecom infrastructure uh, in terms of fiber cables uh, to make uh, uh, the cities of the future uh, most vivable, more enjoyable for their citizen, and at the same time, more sustainable and resilient to the changes and the challenges that climate change is bringing to us. Yeah, you hear a lot about carbon sequestration and even even how these fiber optic cables can be used, but the geothermal energy will be interesting how that develops more in, in the future here. And one of John Clairbout's credos is it's fun to do things that work. How does that credo impact the work of the project? I think it is central because uh, we tend to have a thought young people uh, that uh, really want to have an input. Uh, the other hand, also, they want to be creative, not just uh, uh, implementing somebody else's ideas. And the two things together is basically inventing things that work. And uh, to do that uh, it goes beyond uh, just trial and errors, but it does require quite deep understanding of a theoretical foundation of the uh, uh, wave propagation, wave phenomena together with the geophysical phenomena in the subsurface in the way that uh, uh, the subsurface interact with uh, seismic waves. What particular current or upcoming projects are you excited about? I think that uh, you mentioned uh, the possibility of using fiber optic cables as a way uh, of uh, monitoring, uh, uh, long-term monitoring of CCS. CCS works on a very different economical uh, framework, if you want, than the conventional hydrocarbon exploration. So the uh, longevity of infrastructure as well as uh, the uh, economics are very different and in many ways more challenging. And uh, I think that having ways that uh, we can monitor those projects uh, not only for a few years, but for decades to come to make sure that they are safe. Uh, that is the place that fiber optic technology together with uh, uh, modern machine learning and if you want AI, even if that is a word too much used and abused these days, uh, but basically uh, the fact that uh, we will have a huge amount of data and uh, really to make sure that we can extract the useful information to uh, monitor CCS projects. That is a challenge that is so not only classical seismic imaging, but also effective use uh, of uh, modern machine learning and AI methods. Yeah, that's come up quite a few times in this podcast of the economics of, of CCS, how it's so different from, from what the industry is, is used to. And I like this idea of working with something, the infrastructures are already there and just piggybacking off that to, to further that world. Yeah, in the case of CCS, uh, actually, the, probably the fibers will be deployed with a specific goal of monitoring. Uh, for the cities, it's already there, but it's not going to be there. It's partially be there because, uh, uh, at least in the deep water, fibers are very much used to 
telemeter data as well, but uh, uh, mostly will be really in purpose deployed fibers in boreholes or at uh, the ocean bottom or for land-based projects at the surface. How do you think the greater geoscience community could support this ongoing energy transition? I think uh, uh, by being creative, by not uh, uh, being stuck in the old ways of thinking and realize that the world has changed. And uh, so you just uh, uh, need to make sure that uh, all the huge amount of uh, knowledge, technology, and understanding that uh, we have in our proud history is uh, uh, adapted and tailored to solve a very different kind of problems that we have today. So I think that being nimble, both intellectually and if you want to operationally, is crucial. So is this kind of a furthering of, of that response there? What challenge would you like to leave the listener from this talk? I think is uh, the challenge is don't think that solutions are coming easy. Impactful solution will still depends on a deep understanding both of the physics, of the mathematics, and of the geology, if you are a geophysicist. And there will be moments in which maybe not obvious that you will get to a solution, but I think being persistent and being creative after that you have really gained a deep understanding of the basics, I think that will basically uh, lead you to success. And lastly here, if you had to describe your journey in one word, what would it be and why? I think that one word is kind of challenging, but uh, I will say from uh, one crisis to the other, I was motivated to enter the field from the energy uh, crisis of the 70s. I do remember that still the image of me as a teenager uh, biking around Milan during uh, the weekends when uh, the car traffic, private car traffic was shut down. And so we fully enjoyed, but we also we are aware of the challenges that were coming with that to now that uh, the energy challenges are different, uh, but are still very much at the forefront of our society. So I would say from one energy crisis to the next uh, to the new, to the modern energy crisis, very different nature, very different solution, but still uh, uh, energy and what geophysics can do for uh, energy is center. Yeah, you can still flex that creative muscle to solve these, these big challenges. Is there anything I should have asked that I did not? No, I think that you did a great job. And I do appreciate you inviting me. And uh, I hope that uh, this will be helpful for the broader community, and in particular the CG one that has been my scientific community since the mid-80s. You've reached the end of Seismic Sound Off. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you want to be the first to know about the next episode, please follow or subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Two of my favorites are Apple Podcasts and Spotify. If you have episode ideas, feedback for the show, or want to sponsor a future episode, visit seg.org slash podcast and find the box titled Contact Seismic Sound Off. Zach Bridges created original music for this show. 
This episode was hosted, edited, and produced by me, Andrew Gary at Treasurement. The SEG podcast team is Jennifer Cobb, Kathy Gamble, and Ali McGinnis. Thank you for listening. This is Seismic Sound Off, signaling off. <laughs>